We are tiptoeing our way through the epistle, which we call 2 Corinthians. And we've been talking about different themes in, that, in this one section in chapter 3. We've talked about how Christian boldness comes from Christian hope. How boldness with people comes from boldness with God. We've talked about how people are blind to their sin. And how there's a veil of our sin is like a veil over our eyes. So we don't see the glory of God as it's been manifested in the face of Christ. And how only Jesus can remove that veil of blindness so we can see. And then two weeks ago we talked about how Christ through his spirit is the great liberator of mankind. How he sets people free from emptiness and from purposelessness and from hopelessness, helplessness, aloneness, spiritual blindness, uncertainty. And how the real enslavers of mankind are sin and evil and Satan and death and guilt and worry and the fear of man and things like that. So today there's another theme that we're going to pick up on in this passage. And that's about the Jewish people. So let me read our passage, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 16. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed." Now, there are a number of passages like this in the Bible, in the New Testament, that talk about the Jewish people and something about them and God's plan or some way that they've reacted to God. In fact, there's one section in the New Testament where there's three whole chapters that just talk about the Jewish people. And that, of course, is Romans 9 through 11. And these things rarely get discussed in most Christian churches. And um, this isn't just some, you know, far-off people group that we never have contact with. 45% of the Jewish people in the world live in the United States. The same number as live in Israel, approximately. So instead of just focusing on this one little passage and what it says about the Jewish people in 2 Corinthians 3... I'm going to do this morning a brief survey of the New Testament in terms of what it says about the Jewish people. And then after this brief survey, I'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship between Christians and Jews. And then I'd like to finish by talking about what all this means for us in a practical, everyday kind of way. I've never preached on this subject before. And I have to tell you, for those of you who have been around a long time, that in this sermon, I'm trying to correct 
years of small little comments that I think were misleading about this subject, um, even though I've never addressed it directly, um, I have made comments that I think were wrong-headed now. So let's talk about what the New Testament says about the people of Israel. Obviously, uh, the people of Israel were people very blessed by the Lord. In fact, in earthly sense, the most blessed people in history. In Romans, where Paul in chapter 1 you know, talks about the sin of mankind and primarily the Gentiles, or mainly the Gentiles, since that's most of mankind. And then in chapter 2, he goes on to describe how the Jews are equally sinful and in need of redemption. He raises the natural question in the beginning of chapter 3, what advantage then is there to be a Jew? What is the value of circumcision? What is the value of being a part of this peculiar people if in fact they're just as much in need of redemption and just as much locked in sin as everybody else? And his answer to his own question, and there in Romans 3 verse 2, is much in every way. The advantages that the Jews have are much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews are the ones God spoke to. You know, we talk about how, um, you know, scientists and people talk about how we can't know about God. And we say, well, we can know about God if he reveals himself to us, if he communicates to us about himself. Well, the Jews are the people to whom God told about himself. Of all the people on the earth, he's the one they, he, that he spoke to. But that list, that's just the first thing on the list. He doesn't complete it there in Romans 3, but he does complete the list, or at least go farther in the list, in Romans 9. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So they are the people who not only received God's word, God's communication, but they are the people who were the adopted ones. They're of all the people on the earth, God said, these ones are my children. They were taken by God to be his children. And they're the ones who are the recipients of his glory. That is, they're the ones to whom God showed his glory. He unveiled his face to them and showed himself to them. And they saw him. Unlike any other people on earth. There's with the covenants. God entered into covenants with, it, with these people. It, where he bounded himself to them and covenanted his faithfulness to them. The giving of the law. So he revealed what he expected of them, what he required of them, and how they should live. Again, unique to all mankind. The worship, that is... This people, among all the peoples of the earth, God showed them not only who he was, but how they should worship him. What is fitting and proper to worship such a God as this? And the promises. To this people, God gave promises. 
And there's no greater promises that he gave. In fact, the, if you have to sum up that, pro, those, that phrase, those promises, in one thing, it's the promises of a redeemer that are, you know, fill the pages of the Old Testament. He gave them the, those promises. He didn't give other peoples those promises. To them belong the patriarchs. So they, they were the ones who have this heritage that has been passed down through many generations. And these ones that they can esteem and look back to and talk about and study that became such a part of their identity. And of course the greatest one of all, and this is reaching a climax here, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. From the Jewish people come Jesus Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. What a privilege that God gave this people. Jesus himself says in his conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria that the salvation is from the Jews. And, that, and he also said that he, is, he came first to save the Jews. Yes, he, you know, God so loved the world that he sent his son. There is a universality of God's love and his redeeming effort or program. But God, Jesus makes it clear that he came first to save the Jews. And I have some passages there you can read um, about that if you want to follow up. But obviously, they didn't receive this Savior that God sent. Their eyes were blind. And they rejected Jesus. And that's what this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 tells us. That their minds were hardened, even in the days of Moses. For to this day, whenever they read the Old Covenant, you know, because the Old Covenant, Jesus said, it's about me. But when they read it, we're told, the same veil remains unlifted over their eyes because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So this is not just intellectual blindness. This is something of the heart. A veil lies over their hearts. You know, sometimes people, as I've been teaching Isaiah 53 recently in several different contexts, one of the things is, how do the Jews read this? How can they read this blatant prophecy about Jesus and what do they say? Well, here's the answer, you know. To this day, whenever it is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They can't see it, and they won't see it. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And of course, that happens. These Romans, I'm sorry, First, Second Corinthians 3, these verses about being veiled, is not referring to all Jews, is it? I mean, it's a Jew who's writing this. And almost all of the early Christians at, the, at some point were Jews. And all the apostles were Jews. So some do turn to the Lord and the veil is removed. That's why he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And where are these people? Well, what has happened? Because God has broken down the barrier of division between Jew and Gentile, when Jews become Christians, they mix with the, gen the predominantly Gentile church and they lose their, their Jewish distinctive over the generations. And so there isn't a distinctive 
Jewish Christian community that, has, that we can trace back through the centuries, at least not that I know of. Of course, Jewish people, as we see in this verse, can't come to God except through Jesus. Just like us, just like the Gentiles. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, no Gentile can come to the Father except through me, but you Jews, you already know the Father, so you're good. No, no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. That's what he says. And the Jews aren't the only ones, of course, who have veils over their eyes. The reason that Paul makes a point of the Jews being veiled is because they're the ones that we would expect to be able to see him and receive him. But they didn't because of this veil. And so generally, the Jewish people have rejected Jesus historically. Most even in the time of Jesus himself and down to this day. But Paul tells us here that their eyes have been veiled all along, even back to the days of Moses. And that's why they weren't ready to accept Jesus as the Messiah. It's not something new. They didn't accept Moses. They didn't accept Isaiah. Remember the calling of Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 of Isaiah. You know, God shows himself to Isaiah in this amazing way in the temple. And then God calls out, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And boy, Isaiah's just had this wonderful experience with God, and he's ready to sign up to go on the mission field. You know, to go out and proclaim to all the people about God. And so he jumps up and he says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And then God gives Isaiah the, his assignment. He tells him, that he's going to preach to people who would be blind and deaf to what he said. And so Isaiah's next question is a, temp, is a little bit different spirit. He says, and how long am I going to have to do this, Lord? That doesn't sound quite as promising. But this is the way it's been since the beginning. This deafness, this refusal to listen to God. But it doesn't mean that they're worse than other people. No, not at all. It just means that they're like the rest of us. Even though they were given all these treasures of knowledge and understanding, they're just like the rest of us. They're blind and hardened just like we are. Any people group that had been called by God would have done the same thing. It's just what humans do. Another thing that the New Testament tells us about the Jews that's important for us to realize is that they're still God's chosen people. They are still God's chosen people. God has not rejected them as a people. This is made clear in the first couple of verses of, Isaiah, of Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then Paul gives further clarification 
a few verses later in Romans 11, 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, that is the fact that they are God's chosen people, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So it, it, this calling of the Jews is, hasn't been revoked. They're still God's chosen people in some ways. And then in Romans 11, as we read through it, we see at least five direct promises of a mass conversion of the Jewish people in the future, sometime before the return of Christ. And I've given you the handout partly so that I don't have to read most of Romans chapter 11. But I've highlighted the the five places where he directly talks about their inclusion, their acceptance, their being grafted back into the tree, how their salvation and their now receiving mercy from God at some point in the future. Of course, this doesn't mean that every last Jewish person will be saved, just like not all Gentiles will be saved. But this is spoken of, a, of as a monumental event that's going to happen in the future, which seemingly, there's some indication here that it's going to initiate the return of the Lord and the great resurrection of all. So this is something that should have a, have a strong place in uh, the setup of our expectation about the future. And what a day it will be. Think about it. Think about how the power of God will be manifested to bring to Christ perhaps most of all the Jews in the world, these ones who have made a name of resisting their Messiah and, and saying no to this one that, that people claim is the Jewish Messiah. And now he's going to bring them through a story where they're going to be ready to say yes to Jesus and receive him and celebrate him as their Messiah. It will make the triumphal entry look like a drip in the ocean. Verse 25 of Romans 11 tells us that this hardened state that the Jews are in now is not only partial, but temporary. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So it's partial in, this, in the sense that not all Jews have that hardness. There are some who do come to Christ. But it's not just that, it's temporary. It's until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and then that hardness will come to an end. Won't that be wonderful? Now I'd like to say some things about the relationship between Jews and Christians. Um, sadly, some terrible things have been said, some terrible things have been done to Jewish people over the centuries in the name of Christ. Um, 
And if you'd like, if you're interested, I meant to bring this up. If you're interested in learning more about this, there's a book by Michael L. Brown called Our Hands Are Stained with Blood. The Tragic Story of the Church and the Jewish People. I'd, I'd urge you to, uh, to get your hands on this. And uh, for those, for you who are, have some background with Forth, this has Richard Halverson as one of the people writing a little blurb on the back. Sadly, even Martin Luther, late in his life, made some very negative comments about the Jews, comments that we would shrink if we heard though he was unhealthy at the time, and he was quite grumpy about everything, and said a lot of nasty things a lot about a lot of people in this stage of his life. Why would Christian people act this way towards the Jews? There is not a whisper in the New Testament of permission, much less calling, to take vengeance against Jewish people for things done to their fellow, by their fellow Jews in the death of Christ, which is one of the things that's fueled this, these terrible things that have been done to Jews, including uh, massacre and bloodshed, that, that they were responsible for the killing of Christ. But of course, this is completely foreign to anything in the New Testament. Um, and yet it's been used as justification for many acts of retaliation. And we need to know this. And the reason we need to know this is because there are many, perhaps most American Jews, have a strong feeling that their forefathers were mistreated and oppressed by Christians and that becomes a part of their way that they interact with people who call themselves Christians in our society and so it's important that we understand that we're not just coming to a person who has completely you know blank slate when it comes to Christianity but we come to someone who who already has this strong feeling that, that uh, there's been this great injustice done against them by people who are like you. And so we need, even if we've never been involved in, in ourselves personally in any kind of wrongdoing that we know of, we need to be humble and we need to be remorseful of what has been done in the past. I'd like to finish this morning by talking about what, what does this have to do with us? Now, obviously, uh, part of it is, is that we should be grateful that God has opened our eyes when others haven't had their eyes open. We've already talked about that, so I'm not going to go into that. But I have three things that I'd like to say. First of all, just about relating to Jewish people. It seems to me that Christians ought to feel a special bond with Jewish people and be grateful to them for some ex to some extent. 
It was through the Jews that we received the oracles of the prophets. It was through the Jews that we received the promised Savior of our souls. These are the relatives of Jesus. You know how Jesus' brothers, when they, at first, you know, while Jesus was doing earthly ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. Well, if they still, you know, if we can meet one of them, even in that state, we'd still sort of think, this is cool, he's the brother of Jesus. You know, they'd have some celebrity in our minds because this is the brother of Jesus. In the same way, even if the Jews aren't receiving Jesus and welcoming Jesus and acknowledging Jesus, they still are the relatives of Jesus. Also, there is some indication, I think, there's some justification for thinking that the Jews really deserve a place of preeminence in our, in our desire to bring the gospel to the world. Paul says in Romans 1.16, a verse that we, we know well, except for the last part, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's not where the verse ends. To the Jew first, and also to the Greeks. To the Greek. There's a certain priority in Paul's mind of the Jews. when the, He talks about the gospel going out. And this was his pattern all through his ministry. And, you know, you can see that in, in Acts 13 where he preaches the gospel to the Jews first. When they refuse him, he says, okay, I, I came to you first. Now I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. Also, there's this, close to this is the desire that Paul had for the salvation of the Jews. You know where he says in Romans 9... Two to four, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Then, a couple chapters later, in Romans 11.1, 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the Jews, is that they may be saved. Now, I have to tell you that I always thought of those verses in light of the fact that Paul was Jewish and he, these are the people that he considered his family and just like if you know, if you're Irish and, and uh, you, you still identify with the Irish people, you have a special heart that the Irish people would come to Christ and embrace him and that's similar to what Paul was doing here but I'm not sure that's all that's here, I think it's more than that because these things are written in the context of this section of Scripture, Romans 9 to 11, which talk about the Jews and their place in redemptive history. In this context where the future conversion of the Jews to Christ is foretold in exalted language, it seems to me that the salvation of the Jews is something we should all long for and pray for. Romans 11.12 says, 
if their resistance, that is the Jews' resistance, and I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's very close to what it, act, what it says. I just paraphrase it to make it more understandable. If the Jewish resistance to Christ brought about riches for the world, because, you know, we got the grace, we got the Savior. They resisted, but we got the blessing, we got the salvation. If their resistance brought riches for the world, if their rejection of Christ produced riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion into the Christian church mean for us? So there's blessing for us. There's blessing for the world in the conversion of the Jews. So we should all long for it and pray for it. And then I think there are things that we can learn from mistakes that the Jewish people made. Things that the New Testament points out. One of the strongest, just I can only do a couple because of time. But one of them that I'd like to point out is the whole issue of favoritism. Which is one of the great themes of the New Testament. You know, in Deuteronomy 7, God tells us that he doesn't choose, he didn't choose Israel because they're such a great nation, such wonderful people, such, you know, better than anybody else on earth. He chose them in spite of the fact that they were small and insignificant, but just because of his grace. And yet many Jews fell into that trap of thinking that they were better than everybody else because God chose us. And now, sadly, many Christians fall into that same trap, thinking that, you know, God chose us just because we're better than everybody else, and look at other people, all the non-Christians, and think that they're not as good as us. And in particular, looking at the Jews, all oh, these Jews who rejected Jesus, we're definitely better than them. And there's a warning about this for us in the New Testament. In Romans 11, 20 to 22, it talks about this, that the Jews were broken off from the tree of life because of their unbelief. But you, you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Don't do what they did and think, I got this, it's me. No. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the, Jew, the Jews, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So there's a warning there that we not take the same kind of cocky attitude about the grace of God and think it's something we deserve. Think there's something better about us than other people. It all comes down to a question of putting hope in God's righteousness or putting hope in our own righteousness. And that is at the heart of the gospel. At the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Listen to what Paul says in the end of Romans 9, the beginning of Romans 10. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. The Gentiles. You know, we, we, we weren't seeking God. We weren't seeking righteousness. But God gave it to us anyway. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, 
did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. As if it were based on works. I bear witness that they, the Jews, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That whole path of finding righteousness by doing the right thing, it's all about me. That is over with Christ coming. He ends it. Now righteousness only comes by his righteousness being counted for us. And then I want to take one minute to reflect on things that we can learn from the way God dealt, about God, and about the way he deals with us, from the way he dealt with the people of Israel. And this, you know, you can't point to any one verse about this. This just comes from, you know, knowing the whole scope of scripture and the whole story of God's dealings with the Israelites. So, Think about it. First of all, you can, you can see by the way God dealt with Israel that he is holy. That he demands allegiance. That he doesn't just slough off sin. That he is offended by idolatry. You also see that God is a God who chooses. He doesn't choose those who are better than everybody else. He doesn't choose them, someone, because of the way they look or because of how intelligent they are. He chooses people because of grace. And then we see that God is patient and God is long-suffering. That God redeems, that he comes after, that he fights for his people. He doesn't let them go lightly. We see that sometimes God actually lets his people stumble and fall in order to humble them and help them to come to grips with their need for him. And finally, we learn from God's dealings with the Jews that God has a story that he is bringing to pass. A story which has a wonderful ending. An ending that will manifest the glory of God and the glory of his people. Result in the glory of his people. You can see by the amazing way God has dealt with the Jews, how he's going to deal with us. How patient he is. How firm he is. How holy he is. How persistent he is. And how he's got everything bring, coming to a glorious end. Though through many dangers, toils, and snares. 
And now we come to this table, which began as a Jewish ceremonial feast where Jesus sat with his disciples and he celebrated the Passover with them. And then he took bread and a cup and he turned the Passover into a celebration of his death, his atoning death, which was going to happen hours after he first initiated this ceremony. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, what a great God you are. And we praise you that you sent us the Savior. And Lord, our desire this morning is to celebrate him and to surrender to him. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us because we are weak, that we might be hungry for this food we're about to partake, that we might be grateful for the blessing of having food to eat, not earthly food, O oh Lord, so much as the food that comes from heaven, the food of life. We pray that you would help us to enjoy the gift of Jesus together as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.